Uh, today we're going to be taking a look at, uh, uh, this is Palm Sunday, this is going to be, we're going to be looking at Palm Sunday and God's surprising plans for the future. Uh, God actually uh, has surprising plans for the future. Uh, and so we're going to take a look at how that worked out in, a, in an amazing situation in the past, namely the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And of course, we know the, uh, uh, many of us know that story when Jesus uh, is approaching Jerusalem. And uh, in Matthew 21, we get a good, good snapshot of that. And we see that he's, he's getting near to Jerusalem. Uh, and as he goes there, as he comes into Jerusalem, he suddenly, as he's just entering, getting ready to enter into Jerusalem, crowds of people are coming out to see him. And uh, John chapter 12, verse 9 through 19 tells us about why these crowds of people are coming out there. You see, what had happened is, is in nearby Bethany, just literally a day or two before that, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. This is incredible, incredible, incredible news. And it spread like wildfire into Jerusalem. And there were all these pilgrims coming in to Jerusalem for the Passover feast to celebrate the Passover. And they heard the news that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And many of them, it says in John, they ran out to uh, Bethany to talk to Lazarus, to meet Jesus, to find out what had happened. They were so excited. And, and the scripture says many of them believed. They believed that Jesus was the, the amazing, the prophet who, who Moses had prophesied about, the Messiah, really. Uh, he was the king of Israel. And so uh, this news spreads, and the crowds of people, they hear the next day, a bunch of people hear Jesus is ready to come into uh, Jerusalem, and so they just start coming out in droves to meet him. They're excited. They're like, this is it, man. This is it. The Messiah is coming. He's arriving. We cannot miss this. And so they, they jump out there, literally, and, and just crowds of them coming out, thronging to meet him. And uh, that's where we're going to be picking up the story here. Um, now, notice here, Jesus does nothing to dispel this notion that he is the Messiah. On the contrary, he feeds it. It, earlier in his ministry, he repeatedly is doing everything he can to downplay that because of the misunderstandings they have about what it means for him to be the Messiah. But now he's feeding it. He's, he, look at what he did. Look at what Jesus did. If you look in uh, Matthew 21, uh, <clears throat> verse, uh, uh, yeah, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, well, he's telling them to go get this donkey, right? And uh, and, and he gets a donkey, and he starts riding in to the city on a donkey. Listen, in verse 4, he says this, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey, and the colt put on them their cloaks, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So, so we see Jesus is fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah, and this was a messianic prophecy. So Jesus is purposely fulfilling this messianic prophecy that the people of Israel knew about. He's coming in. He's fulfilling what the Scripture says the Messiah is going to do, and they're amazed. I mean, they are really jazzed. They are totally jazzed. Look at what the... Uh, what, look at what the people said. They said, uh, most of the crowd, look at what they did, first of all. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, to Gentile hearers, that might not sound like that much, but this is huge. This is, a, this is a messianic greeting meant for the Messiah. And John in his gospel makes sure that his Gentile readers get this because when he says they said Hosanna to the highest, he adds, and even to the king of Israel. <laughs> I mean, this is it, man. This is the king of Israel. This is the Messiah. He has come to rescue us. He has come to save us. And here he comes. I mean, this is like more 
than a, than a MAGA. This, this is MEGA, man. This is Make Israel Great Again. I mean, this is like an amazing rally. I mean, this is above and beyond uh, anything we could imagine. The people are just absolutely ecstatic because the Messiah has come. It's time to set up his government. He's going to kick out the Romans. They're going to be delivered from, from Rome. I mean, obviously, this is what God's going to do, right? I mean, it's just totally obvious that God is going to kick out these bad Romans. Roman rule was oppressive. Pilate was a really bad dude. Tacitus, a Roman historian, says Pilate was a bad dude. He's a Roman. He said that. Josephus, a Jewish guy, says Pilate was a really bad dude. Eusebius, a Christian historian, says Pilate was a really bad dude. Listen, if you can get pagans and Jews and Christians to agree on something, it's probably accurate. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Pilate was a bad dude, okay? Just a few things we know. He had hung up pagan worship images throughout Jerusalem shortly after he took over as governor in AD 26. I mean, people had a riot. They were upset about it. He was totally not paying attention to the religious sensitivities. There was a riot. He killed a bunch of people. He put down the riot, but he did take down the images. He, he was like, all right, we better chill a little bit here. But he had taken tax money meant for the temple, and he used it to build an aqueduct. That led to another riot, and he killed more people in that riot. He had coins minted with pagan religious symbols on the coins, in addition to the coins with the image of Caesar on them. I mean, he had, the New Testament says he mixed the blood of some of the Jews with their sacrifices. I mean, this is nasty, nasty stuff. Nasty. I mean, obviously, God is going to get this guy out of the picture. Obviously, God wants to rescue his people from the Romans. Obviously, he wants to do that, right? I mean, it plain as the nose in your face, you'd think, right? So they're sure the time has finally come for Rome. This miracle-working Messiah will now surely miraculously deliver them from Rome. I mean, if he can raise somebody from the dead, obviously he can deal with Rome. This is not going to be a problem, right? Surely this is what can happen, right? Yeah, we all know <laughs> what the answer to that question is, right? Let's see what actually happens. Here's the king of Israel. The people have essentially coronated him, you know, publicly, and he's entering Jerusalem. What is the king going to do? You know what the first thing he does is? He goes to the temple courtyard and he goes to these Jewish money changers and these Jewish pigeon sellers and he overturns their tables and he throws them up and he says, what are you doing here? He calls them a den of thieves. This is a house of prayer, in Mark adds, a house of prayer for the nations. The courtyard of God's temple was meant to be where, where Gentiles where people outside the covenant could come and seek the God of Israel and get right with God and become united with his people. And yet, they didn't care about that. They just wanted to be as close to the temple as possible. In fact, I think they preferred to not make room for such people. And so they're in there selling all this stuff. And he, he's, he's not going against the Romans. He's going against fellow Jews. He's overturning their tables. I mean, this is, this is messed up. I mean, what about the Romans? Come on. Another day, he, he, on his journey in and out of the city, he curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit. Now, this is symbolic of those appearing to bear fruit, but not really, and the judgment that will come on fake believers. Now, uh, some commentators think the fig tree may have represented Israel. That's interesting. That's a bit disconcerting, isn't it? Why is he cursing the fig tree? And then we see later on, he, he shares the parable of the tenants, where he basically pronounces judgment on the tenants because they're not bringing the gain uh, uh, of the produce that was made. They're not giving it to the master of the vineyard. The master of the vineyard had gone on a journey and he sent back his servants to get uh, you know, some, of the, some of the benefits of the produce that they, had, that they had sold. And they beat them. They beat these servants. They killed some of them. And then last of all, they killed the son as well. I mean, it's nasty what they did to him. But the terminology used in here, the master of the vineyard, that's clearly God. The, the vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the, are the leaders and the people who are tending God's kingdom and, and taking care of, of Israel. And, and they get, and Jesus says, we're going to get rid of these tenants. He's going to get rid of these tenants and he's going to bring in new tenants. I mean, that's not a very veiled reference to saying we're bringing in new leadership to the kingdom of God. 
Israel's leadership is going to go, and it's really implying Gentile leadership. I mean, this is, this is the king of Israel? What? I mean, this is nuts. He goes on, and, and it says, I mean, it, the scripture says, the leaders of Israel know they spo- that he spoke the parable against them. I mean, they, even they got it, you know what I mean? They knew what he was saying. He goes on, and he, and he, and he gets challenged about paying taxes to Caesar. And he basically says, go ahead and give Caesar what, he, what, he, what he's due. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. I mean, this is, wait a second. You mean submit to Rome and pay your taxes? He's like, yeah, you're using their money. You're using Caesar's money. You're benefiting from the money that, that uh, he's letting you use, and that, that's part of how your economic system's working because of the stability that the, that the government's bringing and the fact that you can use their currency. You've got to give him his due. This is nuts. That, wait a minute. What? Co- you know, somehow co-op paying taxes? I mean, what? He goes on. He explains. Then last of all, in chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, he explains to them that the son of David is actually David's Lord. That's intense. I mean, after, they, they're thinking, you know, this is intense. And, and see, the Messiah is actually God incarnate. And that's the rub here, see. You can't, you can't uh, uh, intimidate, you can't manipulate the Messiah because he's God incarnate. You can't get him to do what you want him to do. The thing about God is he actually thinks he's God, you know? He's got his own plans. And he goes on and he announces his plans and he, he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, I wanted to gather you, but you wouldn't have it. You resisted me. You, 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 didn't, you don't really want me. You want your own agenda. You don't want me. And sadly, as he weeps over Jerusalem, he pronounces not deliverance for Jerusalem, but destruction by implication by the hand of the hated Romans because they failed to properly recognize his coming. In Matthew 24, he prophesies the destruction of the temple within a generation by a Gentile nation. This is the king of Israel. What is he doing? I mean, it's all unraveling. So it seems. Their plans for what the Messiah was supposed to, it's just all unraveling. This is baffling. What is going on? This is not what they wanted to hear. And then, if to make matters worse, he says, he talks about the fact that it's only after this destruction that, that it's going to be later, later, not as soon as they expect, but much later, there's going to be this delay until, he actually, until the Messiah actually comes to set up the kingdom of God on earth. There's actually going to be a delay in it. I mean, this is not what they wanted to hear. This is disastrous. This is absolutely mind-boggling. It makes no sense whatsoever. Makes no sense. You know, it says in the Psalms, chapter 34, verse 10 through 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And by implication, not blessed is the nation who rejects him, right? And see, this is, this is the word of God. It's just the word of God. What happens when God's plans wildly diverge from what we expected he would do? or what we thought he would do. How will we respond to that? How do we deal with that? Will we continue to trust his leadership? Because the bottom line is, brethren, his agenda can be a little baffling and a little confusing sometimes. How many of us on January 1st, the beginning of this year, could have expected what we've seen unfold? It's kind of baffling. Really. I mean, it's like, whoa. Whoa. What is going on? Now, the the interesting thing is, in Jesus' day, it wasn't just the unbelievers who were confused. Even the believers were confused. I mean, Jesus tried to explain to them. uh, He he, he did. I mean, he actually made an effort to tell them. He said, listen, I'm going to go, and uh, I'm going to be turned over, 
you know, the Jews are going to capture me. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. And, and then I'm going to rise again in three days. And Peter's like, Lord, let me give you a crash course on Messiah 101. I mean, that's not the way it works, you know. And we know what Jesus told Peter, right? Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the plans of man, not the plans of God. And did that mean that suddenly the disciples get it? No. It says in other parts of the gospel, it says that when he told them this, and he told them this repeatedly, they're, they're going, what does this mean? What raised from the dead? What does that mean? I mean, they've got no, no box for this, no paradigm for a crucified Messiah, and then raising three days later. Wait a minute, the resurrection happens at the end of time, on Judgment Day. I mean, what... This time frame, what? Res what does it mean? Maybe that's an allegory. I mean, they have no idea what he's talking about. He's trying to tell them, but they don't get it. And I think, how, how often does that happen to us? You know, I think the Lord sometimes is trying to tell us, but we just don't get it, right? I think that's kind of how it goes with us, probably a lot of the time, right? See, there was, there was no box for a crucified Messiah. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 was, were these weren't considered messianic scriptures. These were not applied to the Messiah. So they had no box for this. We can look back in hindsight and go, duh, Psalm 22, duh, Isaiah 53. Come on, guys, get with the plan. Easy for us to say. They're, they had no idea this had to do with the Messiah. They're totally confused. They're looking through the world kind of like, you know, imagine you've got this straw and they're looking through the world through this little straw hole. And the only thing they can see in that little straw hole is Rome. And they're going, Rome, that's the issue. That's the big giant issue of the day right there. Rome, just get rid of Rome, God. Everything will be good. It'll be awesome. It'll be great. And God, in the meantime, is, has got this entirely different perspective. He's got this 360-degree angle panoramic that can see into the past, into the present, and into the future, who knows the end from the beginning. And we've got this little, you know, little pee hole in a straw that we're looking through. Going, Rome, the big issue. Coronavirus, that's the whole, you know. And I'm not saying, yeah, pray against coronavirus, you know. But let's take a step back here. What is God trying to do? What was God doing in that day? You see, the, they're thinking Rome, Rome, Rome. And Jesus is thinking the entire world is suffering under the control of sin and Satan. Not just Israel, the entire planet is. All past generations, current generations, and future generations are without hope unless I step in and I do something. I am going to have to pay for their sins. I'm going to have to deal with this sin issue, and I'm going to have to deal with it once and for all. That's what he's thinking. He tried to tell them. He told them at the Last Supper, this is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of the new covenant. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied it. Jeremiah 31. There's going to be this new covenant. He's going to write his law in your hearts. He's going to just forgive your sins just like that with the new covenant. No more sacrifices needed. I mean, he's trying to tell them they're not seeing it because they don't have his perspective. They just can't get it. They just can't get it. And yet, that's what he's seeing. The problem is going to require the death of the Son of God on a cross to pay for our sins. And that's going to require something like the Roman Empire to do that. It's what it's going to take. Furthermore, the fact that the leaders of Israel have rejected the leadership of God, they've rejected his leadership in the kingdom of God, it requires their removal from power. That's going to require something like the Roman Empire. Furthermore, God wants to use the stability and power of the Roman Empire, which set up a well-developed road system, merchant ships, trade routes, he wants to use all that, why? To spread the gospel. He's not interested in overthrowing Rome yet. He's interested, he knows the gospel needs to go forth to all the nations. And, and, at, and they have the best road system, 
that anyone had developed up to that date and time in the ancient world. The best trade routes, the best, you know, uh, trade system. I mean, really remarkable setup. He came, like the scripture says, in the fullness of time. He really did. He needs the Roman Empire for that. He doesn't need it, but he's, he's going to use it for that. He's got plans for it. Furthermore, the Roman Empire government repeatedly rescued Paul from the people who hated him. Did you know that? The Romans came to the rescue several times and spared Paul's life. Later, they arrested him and they had him sit in jail for a few years. Both of these things were really, really important. Why is that? Because Paul was going to write about half of the New Testament. He knew, God knew, he needed this guy's life to be preserved. I mean, God, and there are many more reasons why God didn't take away the Roman Empire right away. We don't even know half of them. I'm sure we don't even know what teensy-weensy bits of them. These are just a few of the obvious ones. We can look back in hindsight and say, oh yeah, of course, makes sense, right? The time didn't make any sense whatsoever. <clears throat> Might we be missing what God actually wants to do in our day right now? Might we be missing what God wants to do in this time of crisis? It's possible, isn't it? I mean, where were we before this crisis hit? Where was America? Where was the world before this crisis hit? I mean, we're, you know, it was all kind of like, okay, you're, you know, it's, it's all about MAGA or anti-MAGA, right? I mean, like the whole world was revolving around that. Pro-Donald Trump against Donald Trump. Where do you land in the equation? This is like the big issue of the day, right? And God's going, oh, something way more important that needs to happen here. Something way, way more important. Now, it's okay. Many of us are praying, hey, God, just take this coronavirus away. You know, like, kind of like yesterday, like, you just get rid of this thing, like, presto magico, you know, he can do that. And it's okay to pray things like that. It's not a problem. I'm not saying don't pray things like that. But we shouldn't forget that sometimes he doesn't answer prayers like that. Now, why is that? Because God's mean, he's cruel. I mean, the disciples, undoubtedly, they're thinking, God, what are you doing? This is crazy. This is crazy. I mean, Jesus, it says in the scriptures, Jesus resolutely, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Mark talks about, gets a picture of him. He's up in front, and the disciples are tagging behind, and they're afraid, and they're amazed. They're going, I can't believe he's going to do this. He's actually going to go there and let them kill him. This is nuts. This is crazy. And then it actually happens. He gets crucified. He dies. The disciples are nowhere to be found. They are so distressed. They are so distraught. I mean, John finally shows up right toward the end, right? Nobody is to be found. I mean, they can't even bear to look at him and watch it happen. It is so painful what is happening. They have given their lives to this guy. They are convinced I mean, the, the, it says in Luke 24 that the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he was crucified, and they're talking to Jesus and not realizing it, and they said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you catch the irony? We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. He had just done that very thing. <laughs> and yet, they didn't see it. It was disaster. I mean, Friday... The day of crucifixion was a horrible, horrible day. But what do we call it today, brethren? We call it Good Friday, right? Because God's purpose, thank God, his purpose prevailed, not the purpose of man. Aren't you glad? I'm really, really grateful for that. Sometimes he won't answer prayers like that. But you, you know, never forget, we should never forget this. He didn't even answer Jesus' prayer. God, how come you're not answering my prayer? Listen, he didn't answer Jesus' prayer, right? What did Jesus say in the garden? He's like, Father, take this cup from me. But he said something else that was key. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Not my will. It's not my agenda, Father, it's yours. I mean, the incredible pain that he was facing. We don't, we don't even understand the nth of it. We really don't. I mean, we see the pain of the crucifixion. We can maybe sort of slightly 
maybe get some of that. Probably not. Probably not even close. But, but we can see that, right? We go, that was horrible, right? We can see the betrayal of his friends as well. I mean, like the people who loved him even ran away from him. I mean, like everybody let him down. They couldn't even pray with him for one hour in his moment of greatest crisis and need. I mean, it's incredible how badly they let him down. It's really remarkable when you think about it. I think the thing that was the most intimidating thing to him at all, though, was the, was the thought of being out of fellowship with the Father. This was new to him. How could he bear being out of fellowship with the Father as the wrath of God was poured out on him? How could he bear this? Oh, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering. Just take it from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And that's the key. Once Jesus accepted no for an answer, he did what we should do, right? When God answers no to our request to take something we may be facing uh, and suffering away, when he refuses to do that, we should do what he did. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And, and he found out, what the, he knew what the Father's will was, and he did it resolutely. He pursued the will of God. How was he able to do that? Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this. It says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? He was able to look past the cross to the joy that was set before him. And when you and I do the will of God, when we commit ourselves to our faithful creator, 1 Peter 4.19 says it this way, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't stop doing good. Don't stop doing what God has called you to do when he's not taking away the thing you want to take away, that you want to see taken away. And you're going, God, what is going on? And you're confused and you have no idea. You commit yourself to your faithful creator. You commit yourself to the Father just as Jesus committed himself to the Father. What did he say after he had said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even though he wasn't experiencing him, even though he wasn't feeling him or sensing his presence at all. In fact, he was sensing his wrath and his displeasure at sin. That's what he was sensing. How crushing that must have been. You and I can't even grasp it. The weight of the entire world, the sin of the entire world, the separation, the wrath of God on behalf of the entire world. And yet he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's finished. I did what you told me to do. That's what we do, brethren. When we don't know what to do, when we're in a tight situation, when we're, when we're confused, when we're going, God, I don't know what's happening, we say, Lord, we pray. Go ahead, pray. Take this away. That's fine. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And Father, help me to, I commit myself to you. I commit my ways to you. I commit my path to your will. I want to do what you want me to do. I'm just going to do it even though I'm confused, even though I don't know what's going on, because I know if I do your will, good is going to come of it eventually. It really will. It really will. He, Jesus saw there was something much, much better than the short-term pain he was going to suffer. Much, much better than the rejection he'd feel on the cross. The long-term benefit would actually be endless. And that's the way it is for us when we obey the Lord, when we do what he wants us to do. In, in, even in trial and difficult circumstances. We rarely have an eternal paradigm in our decision-making. I mean, it's true. He always has an eternal paradigm in his decision-making. He's always thinking about the eternal issues. He wants a really great eternity for you and I. Did you know that? He wants us to be conformed to his image. He's got reward and blessing for us and he just wants us to be able to overcome because he really wants to bless our socks off. I mean, he doesn't just want us to go to heaven. He wants it to be a rich welcome, Peter talks about, when he comes. Richly welcomed into his kingdom. I mean, I mean he wants, he is fighting for our success. Did you know that? The Lord is fighting for your success and for my success. We need to cooperate with him. The disciple the disciples were totally dejected at the crucifixion. 
like I said, but today we call it Good Friday. You know, God comes through, we say, in the 11th hour. I think sometimes, quite frankly, it's in the 13th hour. I mean, it happens after we think it's all over, right? And then he comes through in a way that we go, wow, could have never planned that one. God will do amazing things. This is what Jesus did when facing the cross. I mean, he, he took a step back and he was able to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. And he was able to embrace the suffering in the short term because of it. He took a step back and he tried to see that and he did see that bigger picture. Paul did the same thing when he was imprisoned in, in Philippians. We see that in his letter. I mean, great example. I mean, Paul is in jail. He, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if he's going to be released, when he's going to be released. He doesn't know how his Philippian Christian friends are doing. He's heard that some of them are doing okay, but he's wondering, are they still going to do okay? You know, because there might be some blowback from the fact he's now arrested again. I mean, he's concerned about a lot of things, and yet he rejoices. He takes a step back, and he looks at his circumstances, and he gets a picture of some things that God was doing. He says, you know, Christians are a lot bolder to preach, to share their faith and share the gospel with more people now than ever before. He says, you know, even my personal enemies, they're actually preaching the gospel. They think it's going to hurt me, but hey, they're preaching the gospel. I don't care. It's great. The gospel is being preached, whether from good motive or bad. He says, you know, all kinds of people who ordinarily would not hear the gospel are actually getting to hear the gospel today because of the fact that I'm in jail. You know, we've discovered over the last few weeks, there are lots of people tuning in for broadcasts, not just our church, a lot of churches around this country who weren't going to church before. God is speaking to people who were not taking the time to listen to the word of God, and now they are. God's doing something in the, in the day we're in. Then there are always the things that we don't see, things that Paul didn't even necessarily see at the moment in the time he was in, Right? His letter to the Philippians itself, it's the word of, it becomes the word of God, right? Several other letters due to his imprisonment. It is the word. I mean, these, these are, this is the word of God. It's written. He's got time to write now, right? Where he didn't have time before. I mean, God produces chunks of the New Testament through this. I mean, it's amazing what God has done. So that's the question, really. What are the things God wants to do and is doing through allowing this apparent catastrophe to hit the planet. What is God up to? Now, I'm just going to name a few here. You might be able to think of some more. I think this is a good exercise to do. I think it's good to take a step back and try to get the bigger perspective as best as we can. We're going to miss whole huge chunks of it, <laughs> a lot of things we won't understand. But there are some things that, uh, that I trust we'll be able to see through this. We can see. God could show us, get, a, give, get us just a glimpse of, of his perspective on some of these things. Here's one right here. Number one, he's getting the attention of many people who have been either hostile to him or simply ignoring him. Just going through life, busy being entertained, watching sports, going to their jobs, doing the busy stuff of life, and going, yes, God, I know you're after me, but I'm not interested. I've got too many other things to do. Thank you. And God is saying, okay, let me just slow down your world here, like dramatically. Let's just slow it right down. I've got something to say to you. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis put it this way. We can ignore God. We can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. Did you know James 1.17 tells us every blessing we have ever received, every good gift that any human being on the planet has ever had in their life comes down from God. It's the blessing of God. And yet, what do most of us do? We just go, we, t we take it for granted. We just take it for granted. God's trying to get our attention. He's whispering to us in our pleasures. We're not paying any attention. He speaks in our conscience a little more clearly. We try to ignore that too, right? But, C.S. Lewis says, he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. But it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul that says you better get right with God. Now this is 
a time when I would usually give an example of somebody who this happened to. But I really felt impressed this morning as I was praying. Some of you are listening to this right now. And some of you right now, you're going to be the example of that person. God is yelling on his megaphone, you need to repent and you need to get right with me. Will you not listen to me? God is desperately pleading with you to get your attention to get right with him. God loves you. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the sin, God, uh, die on the cross for our sins. God demonstrated his love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he, sometimes a man might die for a friend of his, but he died for his enemies. He died for the people who hated him. And he rose again from the dead that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might have eternal life. And if that's you right now, I just, I just implore you to get right with God. If you have backslidden and you've walked away from him, get right with God right now. I just say, surrender to his leadership. He is trying to get your attention. Will you listen to him? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable day. If that's you right now, you just pray to God, Father, right now I, just, I surrender to your leadership. I ask that you would take over my life. I made a mess of it. I, I know you, you want a good eternity for me. And so you had to use this blunt instrument to get my attention. And right now I just repent of my rebellion of my hardness of heart, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin, and I ask you would be my savior, and you would come into my life and take over my life. I thank you that you are a living savior. You rose again from the dead. You're alive, and you can give me eternal life. You can rescue me and help me even now, and you can give me eternal life, and I put my hope and my faith in you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I just had to interrupt there. No, I'm not sorry, actually. (laughs) to continue with my message here. Another way God can use it to get the world's attention, sometimes he allows believers to suffer. And the way they suffer gets people's attention. My wife was talking with my stepmother the other day. And she said that she was talking to a friend of hers whose husband has COVID-19. He's in the hospital. His health is deteriorating. The doctor who was working on him talked to his wife, and, and he said to his wife, he said, I don't get it about your husband. He's so cooperative. He's, he's so peaceful in his demeanor. He's just, like, so cooperative, so peaceful. It's, I don't see this in the other patients I'm working on. What is it about your husband? Could you tell me? She said, sir, It's because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he has peace in this battle. See, brethren, God wants to use, even when trials and sufferings come into the life of a believer, God can actually use that as a witness based on how we respond in our trust of God, even when we're confused, even when we don't know. When God gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding, when we take our anxious moments and we turn them into prayer requests and he hears us and he quiets our heart and the world looks and goes, how can you walk through this with that kind of peace? It's a, it's a witness to a dying, lost and dying world. We can be a witness, a powerful witness, especially in times of crisis. Secondly, we've got three things here. Here's the second one. God wants to remind us Believers and unbelievers alike of how fleeting and uncertain life is, especially life's riches. And, and really, he wants us to get a proper view of our riches and the blessings that we have in our life. He wants to see, to see how uncertain they are, and he wants us to use them and see them rightly. See, here's the bottom line. As Americans, we're actually all pretty rich. And I know some of you are flinching and you're going, what, me rich? No way. I got a question for you. Do you have like this mechanical heater in your house that just suddenly makes it warm, presto magico, all through the winter? Do you, when you turn on your water faucet to take a shower, does hot water come out, presto magico? Do you get like cold water? Are you able to get like a glass of water from your tap? 
I mean, are you able to, many of you, drive a car, use a cell phone? Did you know there are billions of people in the world who don't have these things? You've got them. Some, most of us have all those things. Brethren, we are actually incredibly rich. So Paul gives us an exhortation for rich people like us, how to look at our finances and our resources. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to not be haughty, that's an important one right there, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Just underline that. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Okay, all right, all right, the government's got an emergency package. Great, the government is coming to the rescue. And tell the government can't come to the rescue, right? And I'm telling you, brethren, I, I studied economics in, in college. <laughs> There's only so much the government can get come to the rescue. The government will come to the end of its resources. It will happen if this persists. I don't know if this is going to persist or not. Nobody knows. Only God knows. Nobody knows the outcome of this thing. Only God does. Brethren, whether it works out good or not, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Put your hope on God. He says, don't put it on the, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, and this is what you're to do, rich person, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. There's that eternal perspective again. My goodness, we're going, God, the Romans! And he's going 360 degrees, past, present, future, eternity. I'm fighting for your eternity. That's what God's doing. Brethren, when we do this, we're actually laying up, storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. Brethren, aren't you glad we've got a future? <laughs> we've got a hope. The world doesn't. Storing up for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Truly life. Amen. This is not a time to hoard, but a time to share with those in greater need than us. And if we get through this time of testing, hopefully we will have learned that lesson and we'll be a bit more generous because of it. Number three, God is wanting believers to more greatly value and unbelievers discover the certainty and stability and exceedingly great value of the eternal hope found in God and in his eternal kingdom. I know I've been, I've been barking about this thing, but brethren, we've really got to get a hold of this thing. <clears throat> See, if we, if we can really get a hold of this, this will really help us with the ups and downs of life. It really will. If the more this becomes a reality, reality to us, the calmer we'll feel. Guarantee it. If you look in, uh, in um, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, it's in your Bible. I know that because I saw it here the other day. Just can't find it right now. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, don't worry about it. I've only been reading the Bible for 40 years. Okay, here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 through 29. At that time, that's the time when God gave them the Mosaic covenant to Moses, his voice shook the earth. God actually spoke on top of Mount Zion, and, and literally a million people heard the voice of God. That must have been incredible. He shook the earth. His voice actually shook the earth when he spoke to them. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. Think of anything that has been made. Government systems, um, currency, um, you, know, you, you name it, right? the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He's going to go after stuff. He's going to make things uncertain and shakable and kind of 
Oh my gosh, what's going on? He's going to do that. Why? So that, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. That's what he wants to do. He wants to put an anchor in our soul, believers. He wants to give us backbone in time of trouble. He wants us to, be, to have that backbone and that security in God so we can help other people and we can point them to the hope that we have. He needs to do that. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Aren't you glad? And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He is so filled with love, he is determined to remove everything that hinders love. Everything that hinders love. Think of God's judgment in that way, because that's what it really is. It's God removing everything that hinders love. This is really, really important. Uh, I'll tell you how important it is. A friend of mine uh, the other day was sharing with me and a, and a couple other guys. He was, he was saying he was talking to a believer about the future hope and the second coming of Christ and how exciting it is Jesus is going to be coming in. And this brother shared with him, he goes, you know, I, I don't really get very excited about stuff like that. You know, I kind of like it here. Like, I got a really good life. I mean, things are just really smooth. Everything's cool. Like, just things are floating along really, really well. Like, I can't see that. You know what, brethren? God wants us to see that. And you know, if he has to shake things up to get our attention, believer as unbeliever and believer as well, so that we learn to value the things that are really going to last, he loves us so much, he's actually going to do that. See, it says in Hebrews that, you know, don't, don't grow weary when the Lord disciplines you. He disciplines you that he, he accepts his sons. He he, he's treating you with love. He really is. God wants to get your attention. And we got to get that eternal perspective. Psalm 1611 says, At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9 No eye has seen, nor ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, brethren, we don't even have the end of it. If you think this is amazing, you, have, you haven't even scratched the surface on what's coming. I mean, we've got it going great. We've got it going really, really good. He wants us to learn to regularly live life, keeping our eyes and our heart on heaven as we view the circumstances of life. Paul says this, he says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, brethren. I mean, this is gonna be amazing forever really is. I think part of it is, you know, people think like they're going to go to heaven and be floating on a cloud or something and strumming a harp. I mean, will you give me a break? We're going to be, have physical bodies and we're taking over the planet, okay? It's going to be awesome, really. It's, that's just some Greek ethereal thing that somehow found its way into the church. I mean, it's, it's not Bible, okay? We're going to get, we're going to be physically resurrected from the dead like Jesus was, and we're going to take over the planet when Jesus returns. Just so you know, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait for it. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to end with the, with the scripture here. You know, again, just God is always concerned with maximizing our eternal happiness, even if we aren't free, we frequently don't even think about that at all. And God is always thinking about that. Just going to close with this scripture and and a word of prayer, and then I'll and then I'll have Pastor Mike close the, the meeting for us. He says in Romans 8.29, for those, or 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great question. Just like park on that for about 10 years. It'll change your life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Remember we talked about this two weeks ago? He knows what we need before we ask even. You know, uh, Matthew 6, right? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. 
Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's comforting. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or COVID-19 or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just if you can come up with something else, right, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, brethren. Father, we thank you for the eternal hope that we have in you. And Father, we pray that in the days ahead that you would shift our hearts and our minds and our eyes a little more heavenward. God, even as we we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, we go, Lord, I've got this other need, uh, you know, my daily bread thing, Lord, you know, (laughs) I got this need, I got that need, my neighbor's got that need, and we know there's going to be trouble each day, but we know that with you, you're going to show us what to do. We're going to be able to take it in bite sizes day by day and trust you, and you're going to lead us. We're going to set our hope not on the uncertainty of riches, not on the uncertainty of what the government can do but on you. You are the one where our hope lies. And Father, we just commit ourselves to you. We thank you that you love us, that you in your, your deep love for us will not allow anything to happen to us, that you will not work for good. You promise that. And Lord, we're grateful. And yet, help us to get that eternal perspective. You're fighting for our eternal good. Lord, we want to get your perspective. We want to get your heart more than ever. And Father, we we want to see lost people come to know you. Jesus, we pray right now, just for anyone who's just committed your life to Christ, reach out to somebody and let them know. Let them know that Jesus is your Savior now. He wants you to be a part of his body. He wants you to get connected. Reach out, call somebody, text them, do whatever you need to do. Let somebody know. God loves you. He's got, a, he's got a wonderful eternal plan for your life if you're willing to embrace it. Father, we thank you for the good things that you're doing in the midst of what appears to be a catastrophe. Lord, we trust you. and We look to your leadership. Even like Job said, even though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Lord, we trust you. We're so grateful for your leadership. You really do know what you're doing, and we give you thanks, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.